The person who fears to be alone will never be anything but lonely. No matter how much he may surround himself with people. But the person who learns in solitude and recollection to be at peace with his own loneliness and to prefer its reality to the illusion of merely natural companionship comes to know the invisible companionship of God. Thomas Merton everyone, this is Pastor Brennan McCulloch with another B-side. This one is attached to the message from Ezekiel chapter 16, because he first loved us. Now, we were supposed to cover chapters 12 through 24, but as I studied them, I realized chapter 16 alone deserves its own message. So as promised, I'm going to summarize the other chapters here now. But man, how about that quote I opened with? in association with that message on because he first loved us. My friend sent me that text yesterday, and I thought, oh, that's going to be a perfect opening for the B-side. Because remember, Israel played the whore because she forgot. She forgot her true lover. That she already had all of the love and the belonging that she would ever need. But she forgot it. So she sought to earn it, to work for it. And friends, it is so true what Thomas Merton said, that if we cannot get comfortable with our own loneliness, with our own solitude, we will never know the companionship of God. Because God is there in the silence. God is there when we're alone. But if we're always trying to wrap ourselves with people, with events, with stimulation, with whatever it takes for us to think that we're a somebody, until we become a nobody, we will never become a somebody. We have to become a nobody. Because it is there that we realize that we are already everything in God. That we are his and he is ours. And so a a message I found incredibly challenging is that we do not need to live out of a sense of insecurity, out of unworthiness, out of being unloved. We just need to learn to look more deeply at the love we already have. And that will teach us to get our lives in proper alignment. But if you want more on that, of course, you can go listen to that message on Ezekiel 16. Something that relates to the message um, comes from a movie I saw called Fever Pitch, a 2005 movie uh, with um, Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore. And it, it follows this high school teacher named Ben. And he is obsessed with the Red Sox. The movie takes place in Boston. He's a season ticket holder for the Boston Red Sox. And he meets this girl. 
And the story follows the challenge of this girl, played by Drew Barrymore, who needs to win his love. Because this boy, Ben, this this guy, he's obsessed with the Red Sox, and he finds his love's divided, right, between the team and this girl who could potentially become his wife. Um, there's this moment in the movie, which in studying for Ezekiel 16 and looking at Israel's situation, it it brought back this moment from that movie. Even though I haven't seen it in like 10 years, I remember this line and looked it up and sure enough, it's there. And so there's a scene where this, the school teacher, Ben, obsessed with the Red Sox, um, you know, he's in this torment because his, his girlfriend's starting to realize that he may not love her as much as he loves the Red Sox. And uh, one of his students says, You love the Red Sox, but have they ever loved you back? And that question should haunt us. Israel loved her beauty. But has her beauty ever loved her back? Or maybe more specifically, have those, have those whom she shared and gave her beauty to ever loved her back? How about your hobbies or the things you're putting so much time and energy into? Great. I mean, there, there's things that we have curiosity and interest in in this life. But to protect us from getting obsessed and out of balance, we have to remember have these things ever loved us back? How about the people you're trying to gain the respect of, or you want them to notice and have admiration, you're trying to gather the applause and praise from? Have they ever loved you back? How many things we work so hard for, sacrifice ourselves for, dedicate ourselves to, has it, have they ever loved us back? The beautiful truth about God is he has loved us back. And more correctly, he not only has loved us back, but he loved us first. And then when we pursued him and sought him, we felt his love come back. So that there's this eternal cycle of love being poured into us and given out from us to him and then from him back to us. This never-ending flow of love between us and him. God not only has always loved us back, but he will always take us back. Even when we get confused, we forget and we lose our way. That's a life worth living. So Thomas Merton, just one more time, too good to only hear once. The person who fears to be alone will never be anything but lonely, no matter how much he may surround himself with people. But the person who learns in solitude and recollection to be at peace with his own loneliness and to prefer its reality to the illusion of merely natural companionship, that person comes to know the invisible companionship of God. Oh, 
Okay, so the chapter summaries for Ezekiel chapters 12 through 24. I'm basically going to just give us the highlights to each chapter and say some things on them. First, I'll just read down a, a, a phrase that encapsulates what each chapter is about, and then we'll dive right into chapter 12. So Ezekiel chapters 12 through 24 basically encompass two visions. You may recall that um, Ezekiel had his first vision in chapter one, and it had the many-faced uh, cherubim, and he saw the glory of God, and he was left speechless, and then he was called to be a prophet. Um, that's his first of 13 visions. He has 13 visions between the dates of 593 to 573. So in the span of 20 years, Ezekiel has 13 visions. We pick up in the middle of the second vision. The second vision was dated, it started in chapter 8, and it was dated 591. And it goes all the way through chapter 19. So 8 through 19 is vision number 2. Then vision number 20, uh, vision number 3, picks up in chapter 20, and that's dated 591. So... 592, 591, the first one in 593. So right there, over the span of four years, the first three visions come. Okay, so with that said, uh, chapter 12, what is it about? Ezekiel moves out of his house with his baggie, with his baggage. It's a symbolic image to the people that, look, you're going to be exiled soon. Chapter 13, uh, it's a prophecy against the false prophets. Chapter 14, Judgment is certain. <laughs> Jerusalem is going to fall. So stop listening to false prophets and having false security. Chapter 15 is the parable of the vine tree. Chapter 16 about Israel as an unfaithful wife and harlot. Of course, we went into detail on that one in the message. Chapter 17 is the parable of two eagles. And then at the end, it shows Israel being revived and recovering Chapter 18, the soul that sins shall die. Chapter 19, a lamentation for Israel's sins. And then vision three starts in chapter 20. Uh, it's the history of Israel's idolatry. Chapter 21, God has drawn his sword. Not Babylon, not Israel's political enemies. God is holding the sword in the vision. Chapter 22, Jerusalem's sins, and there they're named. Basically, it's a failure to love their neighbor, but the specifics are mentioned. Chapter 23, Israel's loose and lustful sisters. So Samaria and Judah are each going to be called a sister. And then chapter 24. Actually, this is the beginning of the fourth vision, but it will continue into next week's passage. Um, chapter 24 is a new vision. It's Jerusalem's doom. Ezekiel's wife dies. Ezekiel chapter 12. Ezekiel is told to do some more street acting. He's going to move out. It's a symbol, right? It's, a, it's an enacted parable. So in uh, 12 verse 3, God tells Ezekiel, As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage. So he's packing up his backpack, right? Everything he can carry on his back. And go into exile by day in their sight. 
All right. So he's going to move out of his house with everything in a backpack, a symbol, right, of the Jews about to lose Jerusalem. In verse 5, in their sight, dig through the wall and bring your baggage out through it. Now, this is where it gets different. They're not just going to go out. Ezekiel's not going to go out the front door. He's going to dig a hole through the back wall and sneak out. See, this isn't the normal way you leave your house. And this, by the way, is exactly how King Zedekiah, who was the king over Jerusalem when the city eventually collapsed in 586 and the temple was destroyed. He escapes through a back gate in the king's garden. <laughs> and Ezekiel's going to actually say this. He's going to say this and talk about how uh, Zedekiah, talk about his fate. And this is, this is about six years before this happens. Okay, so this is, this is prophecy that's going to come true in just a matter of years. So in verse 8 of chapter 12, God, uh, we read, In the morning, the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Why are you packing your backpack and going out through a hole in the wall? Say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, This oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign for you. As I have done, as I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes. And I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. And I will scatter toward every wind all who are around him, his helpers and his troops, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And they shall know that I am Yahweh when I disperse among them the nations and scatter them among the countries. But I will let a few of them escape from the sword, from famine and pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the nations where they go and may know that I am Yahweh. So what Ezekiel is foretelling is something that we see actually happened. You will remember this from when we studied Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 39, verses 4 through 7. Jeremiah 39, verse 4. So listen to what actually does happen. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, that's being the Babylonians invading the city, or about to invade the city, they fled, going out of the city by night, by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah, the desert. See that? They go through the hole in the wall. It's a gate, but still, it's a hole in the wall. They sneak out. Why? Because the king doesn't want to have his head cut off and him to be made fun of by the pagan troops, right? So him and his guard and his royal dignities, dignitaries, they escape trying to find a new life. They're perhaps trying to get down to Egypt. But... Verse 5, the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. 
And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. That's why, Ezekiel says, that the prince of Jerusalem will not see Babylon, even though he goes there, because Nebuchadnezzar took out his eyes. Right after, he watched his sons and his nobles get executed. How about living with that as the last thing you saw? Ezekiel chapter 13. Here we hear about the false prophets. And in verse 10, we read, Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. What what does that mean? Well, the people have built the wall. Uh, This is becoming... I don't think it's talking about the literal wall of Jerusalem. It's talking about a symbol of protection. Like, they're trying to build up the law in their lives, right? They're trying to follow God. But when the people build up this wall, the prophets, the ones who should come alongside and put mortar, uh, uh, mortar, <laughs> there you go, Lord of the Rings, Mordor, uh, put mortar between the bricks and the stones, or put cement there to help hold it together, they don't. So the people are gathering the rocks, right? They're trying to build something. The prophets are supposed to come and strengthen it and to secure it and to stabilize it. But instead, they pour whitewash over this heap of rocks. That's what's happening. So it looks like a wall, right? You can't see what's inside. It looks like the wall's sturdy. But if one is to go lean their body against it, it's going to crumble. It's a wall that will not protect them. It will not last. Hence, the false prophets are pretending everything's fine. God's going to take care of us. And God's like, why are you lying? Because everything is not fine. The people are trying to do something, but you're not helping them. And then in verse 13, see if this doesn't sound familiar. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. And there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. Does that sound familiar? It should. And if it doesn't yet, you're going to slap your forehead with your palm and say, I knew that. It sounds like something Jesus taught. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, this is how he closes his sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You see, instead of a wall, Jesus is talking about a house. Now, this is where it should sound familiar. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. 
And this is what the prophets should have helped Israel do, is to build their wall, their house, upon something solid, not merely coat it with whitewash. Jesus continues, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, my making my connection to this passage is relatively new this week. But I would be surprised if Jesus's original audience didn't make that connection automatically. See, they know what they're hearing. And Jesus is telling us, he's warning us, guys, don't just build your life, but build it firmly. Build it on truth. Build it on something reliable. Even when that truth is not good news. It wasn't good news to hear that Jerusalem's going to fall, but that was the truth. And the prophets misled them to what they wanted to hear. So make sure that we aren't just simply whitewashing our lives, putting a nice clean coat on it when everything inside is decaying and ready to fall apart. It's the hardships of life that will show us what we're really made of. Ezekiel chapter 14, in which we see the certainty of Jerusalem's fall. So some elders come to inquire of God through Ezekiel, and part of the answer, of course, long answer is always from prophets, is comes in cha- uh, chapter 14, verse 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in Jerusalem, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness declares the Lord Yahweh. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job, three very holy people who found great favor in God's eyes, even if they were in the city, they wouldn't be able to spare it. That is what he's saying. So, yeah, no, don't hold on to hope that Jerusalem's going to survive this. These righteous people would only spare their own lives. That's it. The city is going. So everybody can only work on sparing their own life by turning to me in righteousness. Of interesting note in chapter 14 is that Ezekiel alludes to four disastrous acts of judgment. Now, he goes through them in verses 15 through 20, and each time, rather poetically, says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, you know, they wouldn't be able to stop this. But then he summarizes it in verse 21. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, and here he names them, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. To cut off from it man and beast. Okay. It's interesting to see that these four uh, disastrous acts of judgment 
which are, of course are results of the siege, the Babylonian siege, when the, when you camp your army around the city you're trying to conquer, you cut them off, you know, so they're basically just sitting in their own coffin. The city becomes a coffin and everyone dies. And, and these are the four modes of death, typically. Sword, that's from actual war and invasion. Famine, because eventually you're going to eat up the entire city's supply of food. Uh, wild beasts, um, that could either re- allude to warriors or the rulers of the nation, or literally, uh, wild beasts, um, which is harder for me to wrap my mind around, because we live in a very modern world. Um, and, and pestilence, um, because when you live, when you can't get rid of your waste, and you're malnourished, and you're dehydrated, and there's more people living in the city because the people from the rural regions have come to find refuge in the city, you're packed, right? Uh, you're living too close. There's dead bodies. There's, um, well, there's your refuse that you can't necessarily dispose of properly. Pestilence is abundant. But, but I bring this up, not just to give us some gory details about what Israel went through, but because we see these reappear in the New Testament. When there's a future siege, a different siege that's going on. And you will recall it in the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? When the lamb, who is Jesus, takes the scroll and opens its seven seals, the first four seals send forth four riders on their horses. Now, the first one isn't mentioned here in Ezekiel, but the other four disastrous acts of judgment do appear in seals two, three, and four. Seal number two. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. There it is. Now, famine. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. And so those are outrageous prices for barley and wheat. Um, barley being uh, cheaper than wheat here in the scene. And barley was also um, considered not nearly as tasty as wheat. So now you have lower quality food uh, being the only thing that you could really get any bang for your buck with. But then it says, though, but don't harm the oil and the wine. Well, oil and wine are considered luxuries, and they can't actually fill your belly, right? You use the oil to cook with, and the wine was a a beverage of choice in those days. So you're not going to live on oil and wine. You need the barley and wheat, and those are what are in short supply. Now, what likely may happen is um, in the Roman times, uh, they valued oil and wine because the rich wanted their rich foods, right? And often they would replace wheat and barley fields and turn them into vineyards and olive trees. So you're losing wheat to get the expensive stuff because the people in Rome wanted to make a buck. And so then the poor people were suffering. Well, uh, that's famine, folks. And that's, so we see the sword, we see famine. What else do we need to see from Ezekiel? The wild beasts and pestilence. These come with the fourth seal. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. 
and Hades, the place of the dead, followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. There in the fourth seal, you have all four of them. So pestilence and wild beasts make their appearance, but as all summarized, the fourth horseman is killing with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Ezekiel chapter 15, Jerusalem is a useless vine. Verse 2, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? In other words, you've got wood from a tree, which is useful, then you got wood from a vine. If you've seen a grapevine, the wood is it's pretty twisted and it's not very thick. So, here are the questions. Is the wood from the vine? Uh, is the wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. In other words, look, when a vine dries up and it no longer produces grape, the wood is good for nothing. And that's what Jerusalem is. So they've dried up, they're no longer bearing fruit. Even their wood is good for nothing but the fire. Good news. So, in verse 6, I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, we already did a message on this. You can hear the Sunday recording. Um, but there's some things that could... There's, there's still some more things that could be said. Uh, first of all, how about the metaphors between God and Israel? Right? First in the Bible, we see that Israel is God's firstborn son. We see that in Exodus 4.22. Uh, let my people go. You're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, for Israel is my firstborn son. Now, a firstborn son had a very important place in a patriarchal society, right? The firstborn became the inheritor of all of his father's property and thus also became the family leader. So to pass on your family to the next generation, you invested heavily in the firstborn son to become the leader over the family that you would like to see him be. He's going to be the destiny of the family once you leave. So you invest a lot into him, right? So Israel's God's firstborn son. He's going to give the world, the nations to Israel, which also means the father will discipline the firstborn son more harshly than any of the other sons, because this son needs to get it right. And so we see that God, through the prophets, we see how ruthlessly he disciplines Israel. Because if they are indeed the firstborn son, if they're going to be the inheritors of everything, they must be disciplined so that they will become, uh, so that they will take everything and lead it well. So that gives us some insight. But then leading, of course, to chapter 16, the second metaphor we see is that Israel is God's wife. And so we see that in chapter 16 and how she becomes incredibly unfaithful. In Revelation chapter 21, we also see this idea of the bridegroom. In uh, 21, we see, I saw 
the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And of course, in Revelation 19, we see the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so this is the metaphor we see. This is the metaphor we see taking shape in Ezekiel chapter 16. But also, we see this metaphor really and dramatically played out in the minor prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Poor Hosea. He has to go and marry a prostitute. And she's going to break his heart over and over and over again. And he's going to come back for her over and over again. And his heart's going to get broken over and over again. This is how Israel treated God. And God wanted his prophet to feel that, to know what that's like. And so the couple of the daughter, the children are born. He has a daughter. Call her no mercy, for I will not forgive them at all anymore. It's hyperbole. It's just to mean the judgment's coming, but I will forgive them after. Uh, then, and then uh, he conceives another child. Name it, not my people. <laughs> you can you can almost see Hosea saying, uh, not mine. <laughs> and but that's uh, in the same way that the prostitutes going around, Israel's going around, and God's like, these are not my people anymore. And so, uh, some of the background we see to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 17 is the parable of the two eagles and the vine. The vine is Israel, and there are two eagles. One is Babylon, and then the other is Egypt, whom... Israel turns to trust, but that eagle tears him apart. But in the end, there's hope. In 1722, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. In Ezekiel chapter 18, the generation that Ezekiel's talking to, they're sitting in Jerusalem going, it's not our fault, our fathers, it's their sins, that's why everything's coming upon us. We are innocent. And Ezekiel's like, no. No, that's not, that's not how this is working. And so, in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, we read, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So God's clarifying through Ezekiel to the people of Jerusalem, Look, you cannot blame your parents. You cannot blame the generations before. You cannot blame your country your environment, your circumstances, the soul that sins shall die. Each one is responsible for himself. And so, look, 
what medicine is claiming is that there are some things that are inherited. Heart disease, um, some even think that addiction, like alcoholism, is inherited. Or at least you increase your odds if it's in your family. So whether that's true or not, it's nothing we can hide behind. I drink because my dad or because my great-grandfather. It runs in our blood. That might make it harder for you. But you need to take responsibility for your own choices. That is what this is saying. In verse 23, we see God's tender heart. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord Yahweh, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God doesn't want to annihilate everyone. He doesn't want to judge the wicked. But he's been pleading with them for years. And now the time has inevitably come. He is not delighting in this. It's breaking his heart. And if I'm recalling properly, it's in Hosea where there's this this sudden outburst. My heart, my heart. Oh, uh, that was in Jeremiah. We we, We did that recently. I think Hosea has one too. Chapter 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And then in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Also in Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 19, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent for I hear the sound of the trumpet the alarm of war. Ezekiel chapter 19. We have a lamentation. And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness! Among lions she crouched, in the midst of young lions she reared her cubs, and she brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. So there, Jerusalem's lust to lean upon and trust in the Egyptians. A very similar tale of a lion and a cub that grows up ravenous. Uh, is told, and then the Babylonians catch him. And then it talks about your mother being like a vine, but the vine doesn't bear fruit. And in verse 14, the last verse of the chapter, a fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Ezekiel chapter 20. 
This begins the third vision. And in it, we have a history of Israel's rebellion, of their idolatry. And it goes through the wilderness and, and just through, through their, their history. But I want to read some of the refrains here so you get the picture. Verse 13, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. Verse 16, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. Verse 21, but the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Verse 24, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. Four times the chapter accuses Israel of profaning God's Sabbaths. The Sabbath. So remember, he created the heavens and the earth in six days. The seventh was a day of rest because he entered into the creation himself. Much like the coming of Christ, God was originally with human beings on the earth. And the seventh day was the day when they would spend time together, walk in the cool of the day, teach them how to rule over creation and make it even more glorious with the powers that humans originally had. And then the Ten Commandments say, you shall keep the Sabbath. See, to God, the Sabbath day was a lot like a date. As we should date our wives, spend time with them, or our husbands, spend time with them, God had arranged a weekly date with Israel. And Israel fell, played the whore because she did not keep her dates with God. She forgot him because she didn't spend time with him. Relationships are deepened through time, through spending time together, through getting to know one another. God arranged that for them. But Israel didn't keep it. Are you keeping your dates with God? Ezekiel chapter 21, we see, behold, this is verse 3, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. And then Ezekiel goes through some enactments. Um, he groans in verses 6 through 7. He beats his thigh in verse 12. And he claps in verse 14. People are supposed to ask. And it's basically saying, well, this is because judgment's coming. So the weird prophet does some more weird things. In Ezekiel chapter 22, we see the sins of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus said he could sum up the whole law with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That pretty much sums it up. We've seen that Israel does not love God fully. Now we're going to see, consequentially, she does not love her neighbor. So here's a summary of the sins in Ezekiel 22. This is verse 6 through 12. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood and people in you who eat on the mountains. Remember, the mountains were often where idols were. 
They commit lewdness in your midst. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me, you have forgotten declares the Lord Yahweh. And there you have it. How do I love my neighbor more? Live in love with God. Adam and Eve sinned, then Cain killed Abel. Israel defiles their neighbors because they've forgotten Yahweh. It's a simple pattern. We must love God with everything we are, and you will love your neighbor. First John, the book of First John in the New Testament, is all about how do I know that I belong to Christ? John over and over says, well, you will love your neighbor. That's how you know that we are his. Because God is love, and we will love. In verse 30, there's a well-known verse. And I sought for a man among them who shall build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. So the wall of the Jews is breached. There's a hole. Who will stand in the gap? Who will cry out for the people? Who will try to plug it? No one. No one. So, of course, they're going to fall. And now, of course, the wall here is not literal. It's the idea of God gave them a law as a wall to protect them, right? So that they wouldn't become like the other nations, but instead would become unique and different and lead the other nations. But this wall, through their breaking the covenant, this wall now has a hole. It's broken down. Who will stand up and rebuild it? No one. So we need to be careful what kind of holes are in our wall. And are we willing to address those? Or are we pretending they aren't there, filling the gap with whitewash? And then the last verse of 22. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord Yahweh. I have returned their way upon their heads. In other words, and we we see this popping up here and there. The judgment that's coming upon them is their deeds boomeranging on themselves. God can only hold back their own mistakes long enough before they're just going to boomerang back upon themselves. Because remember, the firstborn son must be adequately disciplined or given training, teaching. That's what dis, by the way, that's what discipline (laughs) means. It doesn't mean punishment. It means to train, to teach. That's why Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 learners of his way. Anyways, uh, the firstborn son has to be disciplined so that he can become worthy of ruling everything of God's. Ezekiel chapter 23. It is very similar to Ezekiel 16. You will see the word lewd, L-E-W-D, throughout this chapter. And I've 
basically translated it because it's not a word we use a lot. Like, I mean, I think we all kind of understand what it means, but we just don't use it. So I, I'm, I think of it as loose lust, right? Lewd is loose lust. It's used a lot, as well as the words lust and whoring, just all over this chapter. Um, so here, here is what it is. It's, it's a tale of two sisters. Ahola is Samaria and Aholiba is Jerusalem. And it just, like chapter 16, it talks about how they played the whore. And it does it its own way. Um, not only is lewdness a theme in this chapter, but some of the language is quite lewd itself. For example, verse 19. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth, when she played the whore in the land of Egypt, and lusted after her lovers there whose members, so those in Egypt, whose members were like those of donkeys and whose issue was like that of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. Now that part you hear and like, oh, that's lewd, but uh, very discreet here in euphemisms. We have the the lovers, the Egyptians, their members were like those of donkeys and their issue was like that of horses. Ezekiel's being very lewd here and kind of funny at the same time because he's exaggerating. Uh, the English is very nice. Members can translate to genitals. So their genitals were swollen like donkeys. And issue can refer to the emissions. So their emissions were like that of horses. Yeah, just pure sexual desire here. Just just raging desire. So why, you may ask, why so lewd? Why so graphic? Well, commentator Christopher Wright says this. Ezekiel 16 and 23 are long, they are lewd, and their language in places is, frankly, pornographic. They evoke images of the most vulgar sexual depravity and the most horrendous graphic violence. They are, in short, shocking. Shocking is what they were intended to be when they emerged from the mouth of this young son of a priest who must himself have been utterly appalled at what he was being given to say as Yahweh's spokesman. Most English translations have to tone down the language and imagery. Yeah, shocking. Why? To get their attention. You guys are sinning. No, no, we're not sinning. It was our fathers. Or things are not that bad. Peace, peace. Say the false prophets. Well, if you think that's the case, then let me show you your condition in another way. You know, you can tell people they're sinners and like the, the, the words, the phrasing can just fly right over our heads because we've heard it so much. But then you can show them that they're sinners and you can use some graphic ways of showing them. And wow, now I see what you're saying. We do not know who was spared because of Ezekiel's uh, graphic storytelling here. But we know that this, this is how God wanted him to share it. One of the sad things in this, well, of course, is in verse 37, uh, they committed adultery and blood is on their hands with their idols. They've committed adultery and they have even, here it is, offered up to them for food, the children whom they had borne to me. The irony is like, 
they're playing the horse. They're probably getting babies in the process. And now they're offering these babies up to the idols. So it's this vicious cycle, right? Uh, your godless living is producing these babies, which you are giving to the godless living to keep it going. Idolatry will demand everything from us. Not event- not immediately, but eventually. It will demand everything. Idolatry is not a good path to live. If you want to hear more, I talked a little bit about that in the message of Ezekiel 16. But then we see this syncretism. It's where you combine multiple religions and just make it one. Verse 39, For when they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. Oh, yeah, no, no, we still worship Yahweh, they think. Look, just because you call on the name of God, just because you say you follow Jesus, just because you use those words, means nothing. Even the demons believe, James warns us. He said that your faith will produce works, using Abraham as an example. And friends, you can say, oh, no, 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 but we worship the true God. But if you're sacrificing the children on the same day, you're worshiping your idea of God. And that's why, yes, we're not saved by works, but your works are awfully important because they confirm that you are saved. And finally, Ezekiel chapter 24. This begins the fourth vision. Ezekiel receives it on January 15th, 588. This is two years before Jerusalem is leveled in 586. So this vision comes to him when the siege begins. The Babylonians have surrounded and cut off Jerusalem. And so he gives this parable about a pot. Jerusalem's the pot. Meat is put in it to be boiled. The meat are the people. Uh, You can read about that. But then the tragic part. Ezekiel not only says things, but he's been enacting things to teach the people. And here's where the enactment gets painful. So in verse 15, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put on your shoes Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So, Ezekiel says, I spoke, probably the parable about the boiling pot, I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening, my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. Ezekiel loses his wife because... Despite all the threats of judgment and the certainties that it's coming, this is how it feels for God. He's about to lose his wife, Jerusalem. And God wanted Ezekiel to know how this was going to feel. Because it can be easy for us, can't it? To rage and to yell and to scream and to shout at the world and the, and the sin we see and the anger we feel for it. It can be easy to do that, right? But God teaches Ezekiel how it feels to be God and to see all this. And it's going to change Ezekiel's tone. 
And he actually doesn't speak, right? He's silenced when his wife dies. It says not to mourn, but it's implied that he's not to speak after this because in verse 27, we read, On that day your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am Yahweh. Uh, just in some of that saying is, in, in two years, when Jerusalem finally does fall, a messenger will come and tell you, Ezekiel, then you can open your mouth. So he loses his wife, and for two years, he's got to live with the pain to know what it's like to be God and watch your people be destroyed. Then he can open his mouth. So sometimes I think we are not good at sitting with hurt and pain. You know, we're the, we're the people of joy and that one day God's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. Yeah, right. But there need to be tears to be wiped away. I think we would be better at, rather than shoving down our pain or the uncomfortableness of the world, we sat with the pain and we wept with those who weep and, and we felt the way God feels. Remember in chapter 18, he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but wants everyone to come to a moment of conversion and to change their life and to believe in him. So um, Ezekiel is given, yeah, that'd be hard. Being a prophet did not look easy, did it? No. But so friends, uh, there's a, not quite a tour de force, but a really quick rapid fire through these chapters. Um, I hope you're enjoying Ezekiel. Not one of the easiest prophets to read. Some of you said that about Jeremiah. <laughs> I'm going, well, maybe you haven't read Ezekiel yet. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you enjoy it. But uh, what we come up to next in Ezekiel. So we finish basically the prophecies of, Ezek- of Jerusalem's doom. So it's going to, as we can now see, it's going to happen. Uh, what we come to next is an intermission. So there's going to be some prophecies against the nations. Then... In chapter 33, we return to Jerusalem, to the people of God. And so we've seen the glory departing. Then there's going to be this intermission, talking to the nations. And then in chapter 33 and on, we're going to see the future glorious return of God's glory. So some of this, yeah, it's, it's all good prophecies. This is where Ezekiel gets really good, I say, is between chapters 33 and 48. Um, it's just so much hope, so much glory, some of it already fulfilled, some of it yet to be fulfilled. So it'll be exciting time to be studying through that and even possibly living through some of it. So there's our crash study through Ezekiel chapters 12 through 24. I hope that the Lord has um, blessed you some way through it. And until next time. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thanks for listening.